You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Epidemic Sound, the company reimagining music licensing for the digital age. Epidemic's library contains tens of thousands of tracks that you can license a la carte or on a subscription basis. Unlike other music licensing companies, Epidemic Sound owns its entire catalog and makes tracks available via one straightforward license to cover all your needs, worldwide and in perpetuity. No more headaches around usage reporting, performance royalties, or murky rights ownership. It's better for the artists and better for you, the creator. So whatever your music needs, Epidemic Sound has got you covered. You're listening to All Things Video. We're your hosts, Luke Wang and James Creech. And today's guest is Jack Davis, the founder and CEO of Crypt TV. Jack, welcome to the show. Thanks, boys. So I guess just to kind of start things off, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came about founding Crypt TV and what Crypt TV is to? Crypt TV makes short, scary videos in order to build an affinity with an audience so we can sort of serve that audience in all the ways they love horror. So scary horror genre, whatever you want to call it, we care about making original or digital scares. And the story of how we were founded, to take it all the way back, not a direct story, but a good one. My partner is Eli Roth, who's obviously a director, producer, known for Hostel, Glorious Bastards. And I met him totally fortuitously before I ever started Crypt TV, but this is what built our relationship. I sat down. Are, am I allowed to curse on this? Yeah. So the story necessitates cursing. <laughs> So I sat down with Eli, or I sat down at a dinner party, and I turned to my left, and Eli Ross sitting there. And at the time, I had was summer before my senior year in college. So this is July or August of 2013. And I'm like, oh, shit, you're Eli Roth. He's like, hey, what's up? And I said, Teddy fucking Williams knocks out of the park. Then wait his feet for Teddy fucking ball game. He went yard on that one, all the way on the Lansdowne Street. And that was his speech from Glorious Bastards when he beats the guy at the baseball bat. He says, how do you know that so well? And I said, in the present tense at the time, I'm in a fraternity. And when I was pledging, because I pledged, the pledge next to me in line, that was his pledge name, that speech. So I heard that speech 15 times a day, 73 days in a row. That's like an accurate number, 73 days. I remember how much I pledged. So I heard that speech while I was doing really horrible, awful things and under duress for really foolish reasons. And he thought it was so funny. So he said, call your pledge, brother. So he shut down the whole like table for me to call my pledge, brother, calls my pledge, brother. And they do the speech back and forth to each other. And I just was like, damn, Eli Roth, you're the coolest guy ever. <laughs> like, you're, just, you're such a cool guy. So we kind of kept in touch. You know, obviously I had to finish my senior year of college. And then in August of 2014, I kind of had that I'm not going back to college moment. Kind of was doing some odd jobs. I saw digital was really growing. You know, it's, it's amazing to think how much the landscape changes so quickly. I think that's probably why people believe in it for the future. I called Eli and I was like, hey, man, you know, I see that, you know, this short video thing is really kind of people care about it. No one's doing it for scary, for horror. You have a great brand name. Let's let's try. And we did some tests in September. They went well. We were like just making like little vines and like stuff like that, putting stuff on Twitter. And then in October 2014, we did this contest called Six Second Scare. Eli got Kid Cudi and Quentin Tarantino and Vanessa Hudgens and, and Elijah Wood to be judges. You know, at the time when we were doing, we were having a little success and I'm, you know, I'm calling people, I'm trying to kind of get my footing. 
And everyone's like, well, you know, we know you can make someone laugh in six seconds. You know, you can do a little makeup video in 30 seconds. Can you make, can people care about short, scary content? So that's kind of what we were out to see. And this contest, Six Seconds Scare, just blew up, like beyond our wildest imaginations. We got 18,000 entries. Eli ended up on Good Morning America talking about it. We announced the winner at Quentin's New Beverly Cinema. Of 15,000 entries, the winner happened to actually be at the New Beverly Cinema. Stood up, was an animator in LA. Stood up, like came on stage. It was awesome. That's when we knew we had something. But also, much more importantly, that contest taught us tenants that ended up being part of the business moving forward, which was there's a few things that are endemic to horror that don't exist in maybe comedy or lifestyle. Those types of digital content will almost definitely always be more ubiquitous, but scare speak no language. We were getting submissions from Chile and Argentina and Germany and Ohio and Florida, and you can create new characters because the phone, this vertical thing you watch on, a lot of it is, you know, up and close in someone's face or sort of that like tight shot. And when that's on a mask or a new character, a new visual, people get really excited. So those became actually core tenants. As this was going on, we met Jason Blum and Blumhouse Productions. So, you know, talk about the other perfect partner other than Eli that you could have for something scary. Blumhouse is just, was just, we were so lucky to meet them. They became, you know, a strategic partner. And then after that October, we kind of went into stealth mode to figure out, okay, we, we want to try, to try and build a business here or try and build something. And then we launched in April 2015. So six months later, as Crypt TV, since then, have just tried to grow by making original short scares, tried different things. We feel like we have a formula that works. And now we have 20 million viewers. We release content through Facebook. But we've done really cool things on Snapchat. We have a publisher network. That's the full origin story. There it is. Why horror? Have you always been kind of attracted to scares and, and the genre? That's a good question. I like all movies. Like I can talk to you about a lot of horror movies. I've seen everything. Eli obviously loves horror. Jason and Blumhouse love horror. They're, to be honest, the aficionados. For me, I have a lot of respect for horror fans because they care about this type of content. You know, horror is almost a lifestyle. Like if you're a horror fan, like it's probably one of the first three or five things you'd say about yourself. Like if I asked you, you know, like five things, you might not say like, I love thriller movies, right? Maybe you would, but horror fans, they always say that. So to me, and when you look at how we're trying to tackle this, I was really excited to try and create not just like a niche digital content company, but try and create content where we put the brand first because these fans are so passionate. I think the fan base is, is big enough to support a business successfully and no one was making it. No one was making content for them. Because again, the same question, oh, is, should you do scary on digital? Oh, can you really scare someone? Oh, should we really do horror? So it's kind of like a perfect storm. And I would say that if I were to have started a different type of digital company, it would be with a specific audience that's deeply passionate though. But I don't think there's any audience that represents that better than horror fans. Right now, you guys have a Facebook presence at around one and a half million Facebook likes. Mm -hmm. Everyone has to start from somewhere. How did you guys decide that Facebook was going to be the best platform as opposed to YouTube where a lot of other media companies yeah. started their presence? I think you see a lot of companies now starting their presence and building their whole business off of different channels. And I would like to think we were one of the ones who tried that by going through Facebook, like you said. I wish I could sit here and tell you that I was like a genius and foresaw the rise of Facebook video. But it was really as simple as like the start of 
why we wanted to launch on Facebook was I saw articles coming out about, you know, I read to filter like everyone else. It's a good, great site. And I saw articles coming out about Facebook video, Facebook video. And we were going to launch on YouTube. We had like, you know, content ready for like the first few months. And I kind of thought, well, we might as well just try this because we're not like everyone's on YouTube. Right. And if we're going to start, we're already trying to do hard. We're already trying to do something different. And then I was immediately, once we launched, amazed by Facebook's tools for growing a business because the interest-based targeting you can do on Facebook is amazing. So we started by buying tons of ads for the page, not for any specific videos, but for the page. Because you can just target horror fans like, hey, we're Crypt TV. We make original scares. And I would say, and we launched in 2015, I would say it took until August of 2015 for it to take off. But when you say take off, you mean growing organically as opposed yes, to paid. Yes, exactly. Because I learned pretty quickly with Facebook, it wasn't the right idea to buy ads for the videos because we would do that, but it's not like the completion rates would be good. It wouldn't lead to people liking the page. So we just like buying ads just for horror fans, just for the page. Around August, all of a sudden, we noticed bumps in traffic organically. Then by that first October, like our first October as a real company, which obviously people love this content. Oh, all of a sudden we have our first organic video to reach. 750,000 views organically. And then by about January, so January of this year, 2016, we are getting every video is just doing really well with the qualities there. So the reason I love Facebook, and again, when, I, when, I, when we made that choice, it was really just kind of like a whatever, let's do it. And then the targeting tools were so great that now, I mean, all of our traffic is organic. And it's been with that way for a while because we were able to cattle call fans to this page. And since we're going after one specific group, after a certain point, there's just a network effect where all horror fans are sharing and their other horror fan friends are seeing it. It's like, oh, this is the only, I mean, we're the only people making original horror video every day. So it kind of just worked out. Have you seen any sort of negative effects of how Facebook has sort of altered their algorithm over the past few months? I do think there's negative effects as it relates to the content industry. It's actually been helpful for us because we're uploading our videos organically there. I don't know how Facebook algorithm works. I mean, I try to understand it, but I'm trying to keep up with it. And like, I would like to think that I'm professional, but I'm not. Us making original content, our engagement rates are incredibly high. It's organic because, you know, we're not buying ads on the videos. And from what I understand, Facebook score gives you for your posts. Like, you know, we're getting our like share. You know, we, 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 cal- we have like an internal formula for like share divided by impressions and like kind of what that means. It's like really good. And I compare it to other pages. It's, ours is really, really strong. So maybe that's why. And also, if you think about it, if they're cutting down links in your feed, that's what they're doing. If you're, you know, you're linking to ESPN.com, you're linking to, you know, your blog, you know, your, you know, if you're daily mail and you're linking to your articles, they're cutting that down. We're all organic in there. We drop links in our videos sometimes and those videos still do pretty well. So it hasn't hurt us. I do think that it's a little like, you know, they're the bully. That's the benefit of having everyone in the world at your platform. Right. 1.7 1.7 billion, I think, yeah. at last count, something like mm-hmm. that. When we've talked in the past, I feel like you've never really seen CryptTV as just being a media company, mm-hmm. but more, as you've mentioned, called like a lifestyle brand mm-hmm. or, a, or a lifestyle company. Can you sort of expand on that a little bit more and like what that means in terms of where you want to go in the next year, two years, three years? I see us as a lifestyle company because, as I said at the beginning, these fans are so passionate. You know, we have a group of fans who self-organized called the Crypt Family. They created their own logo. Uh, one of our best, strongest 
boldest Crip family members. Josh Milliken got the Crip family logo tattooed to his stomach. You know, they make their profile picture of like the little twibbon for the Crip TV. They self-identify. They have their own. They create their own little Facebook group. I mean, it's amazing. That's who we're for, right? We're for these people who care so much because the brand needs to speak to them. So why do we not just want to be a media company? I think on one hand, it's because we picked a niche, not just because it was a niche, but because we knew the fans in this were passionate. They were hungry for original scares and they love movies. They love TV, but we know that people are enjoying content on their phone and no one was making for them. So the fan base is one reason, but another reason is a business reason, which is I knew from the beginning and we knew as a team that we were never going to be brand supported, right? You hear about the brand business, which is in a great business if you're awesome as TV, you know, if you're, you know, big influencer, if you're Studio 71. And while we have brands we'll be working with this October, outside of Halloween or that time period, you know, the big brands, like, you know, they can just invest in comedy. And that's probably a better investment for them than necessarily a scary video. Maybe I shouldn't say that, but it, it you know, I'm probably not going to change Pepsi's mind just by, you know, them listening to this. So we knew from the beginning that the way we would be a viable business, a high growth business, a business that could have a lot of value is we wouldn't be able just to be rolling the Pepsi brand, the Doritos just every day, right? So in order for us to do that and be a great business, we need to tap into the market opportunity that comes from horror. And these fans spend $12 billion a year on their passion for horror. The yearly haunted house industry is a billion and a quarter dollar a year industry. Halloween is a $7 billion a year industry. I encourage everyone in the world to Google that because it surprised me. I didn't think that was real until I looked it up. It's the number two holiday after Christmas, right? And people spend on masks and costumes and shirts and themed candy and horror entertainment. Video games is actually the biggest sector of horror entertainment. Horror video games are much bigger than the horror movie industry or horror TV. You know, things like Resident Evil and Five Nights at Freddy's and all this stuff. So for me, it was a combination of hey, we don't want to just be a media company. We want to be a lifestyle company because the fans we make content for view their passion as a lifestyle. So if they view it as a lifestyle, we should treat it as such and be a brand that they can respect and love and look at that logo and mean something. And also because if our goal was to only be a media company, I don't think our growth potential as a business would be that high. Coming obviously from, from the digital, touching back on the media aspect of your mm-hmm. business though, where do you see the traditional media players at their most vulnerable in the sense of, you know, now you obviously have tapped into something that's given you opportunity to create this platform Mm -hmm. that's been phenomenal to reach this audience and this fan base. Where do you feel like the the traditional media camps aren't getting it right? What do you guys think? I have my thoughts, James. You want to jump in? Yeah. I mean, I'm not as familiar with the horror genre, right? Mm -hmm. But speaking broadly about the differences between traditional and digital, one is that traditional media companies are used to a monologue. They produce content, they push it out to a broad audience. It's broadcast for a reason. Whereas in digital media, for the first time, you have a dialogue, right? True interaction with the fans and the ability to create a lifestyle brand because yearning for that content, right? There's no place to find it on digital unless people like Crypt are creating it for mm-hmm. them. So I think that's a big part of it. And I think that's why we see new technologies and platforms like Snapchat and live streaming that offer more of a direct interaction with the fan community as being pretty significant. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think in the traditional media space, there are there were rules and not just from a legal perspective, but also from a business financial perspective, mm-hmm. whether it's having a limited amount of spectrum that you can broadcast to on television or a limited number of distribution slots and theaters that you can should be filmed filmed to. With the internet, 
all those rules and those constraints have been completely eliminated Mm -hmm. and the barrier to entry is, is now democratized for anyone that wants to be a content creator to be a content creator. No one's there to say yes or no. And that's caused a really, really interesting effect on the cost of business, the cost of creating content, because now it doesn't matter if AMC spends $3 million on a TV show, but I'm watch. I'm spending my time on a Snapchat video that costs nothing. I think it's a great point. And those two are going to converge at a certain point. I don't know when it's going to converge, but at but a certain will, point, some point. Someone, something's got to give. A business can't be predicated on someone on spending tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars a minute on content when it can just be easily spent on something that was a dog video posted on Snapchat. I think that's a great point. And I think to accentuate that point, I would say that your turnaround time in making content is so long. We made this one short, The Birch. So I encourage you guys to check out. It's like one of our most proud pieces of content. This like crazy tree monster thing. We work with these UK filmmakers. And we made it cost efficient. It has, I think, three and a half million views, like 12 million impressions. We spent zero dollars for that. So all in the cost between you know, the content and marketing were low. And the most amazing thing in this right to give obviously credit to our chief content officer, Kate Kranz, because you know, she helps formulate this process, but from idea to script to it's on our page, three weeks. You know, our direct revenue models from that content are not as developed. That's a huge advantage that, you know, traditional media companies have, which is they, you know, the per unit economics on a minute of content or a show, they have way better defined than we, than companies much more did. Like, you know, Austin TV does. They still have better per unit economics. The big boys can understand. But I agree that the costs are high. And I think the problem is the phone's the great equalizer. And I love your point about convergence because when things do converge and you're watching here, the greatest, most insane production quality and solid production quality, it's much more difficult to differentiate on a phone. And while I think there'll always be a place for high quality storytelling and high quality content, people who know how to make it look beautiful on this screen will maybe have an advantage than people who know how to make it look beautiful on a big screen, right? And I, I, th- I think it's an amazing art to make something look beautiful in a theater and, you know, pe- hundreds of people are watching it together. And I love that communal experience. But to your point, if you're the viewer at home and people are converging and it starts to become more on the phone, you know, people I know, we know crypt, crypt we know filmmakers who know how to make look something beautiful on the phone very cheap because they know the aspect ratio and the viewership style there and they can turn it around really fast. Outside of the U.S., where else do you find crypt fans? We have a growing presence in the U.K., you know, we've intentionally tried to focus on the U.S. because we actually are really excited about the market opportunity of abroad. So when we tackle it, we really want to go for it. Of course, you know, we've gotten, you know, traffic everywhere because that's the nature of the internet. Your content gets shared, it diffuses. But eventually, I would like us to try and take on our next vertical won't be comedy or sci-fi. Our next vertical will be Germany or Mexico or South America or Europe or UK, right? And uh, it's really interesting because horror fans have different tastes in horror based on their region. South America is sort of more paranormal, kind of interesting paranormal. Eastern European and Europe is a little more, you know, slasher, kind of like classic villain homage. From what I can understand, Japan and China is a little more like supernatural horror. So each region has its own sort of taste, which is cool. But we've seen traffic everywhere, but we've also, you know, analyzed. And one thing we did... Just as a test, you know, we know that scares speak no language. I talked about that at the beginning. We did dark posts on Facebook, right? Which is a Sweden put it to our page. 
we just created ads in some of our videos and ran them against our audience in the US because we have enough fans and our verified page. We can actually buy ads against our own audience. So we ran dark post ads on against our audience in the US and then against just general horror fans in Germany, in Mexico, in Argentina, in the UK. And it actually, the share rates and the viewership rates and the completion rates were better in certain countries in the US. And that goes into our thinking. Let's make dialogue-free content. Let's focus on a monster. Even if there is dialogue in the one or two minute video, could you watch this and enjoy if you didn't speak English? When we do take on new territories, we feel very confident because we know already that actually maybe horror fans elsewhere are enjoying this potentially higher rates than the ones here. What are some of the biggest challenges in the business or the hardest parts of being an entrepreneur? Well, you're an entrepreneur. What do you think? There's lots of ups and downs, right? I mean, Getting... it sucks. That's probably the first. Right? <laughs> it's not for everybody. Yeah. I tell Luke, like, he knows, right? It's yeah. not for the faint of heart. Getting comfortable with the highs and lows, being able to, mm. to in your gut, handle that level of risk and mm. roll with it is a big part of it. I'd say the hardest part is, you know, selling the dream and staying mm. passionate about what you're doing when other people probably think you're crazy. Well, I can, I can echo those sentiments. And I can also say, I feel like, at least for me, I think of the hardest thing, you know, I'm 24 years old. I've never done this before, right? I mean, if I were to quit Crypt tomorrow and start a new company, I could at least say, oh, I've done year one before. I've done, you know, seed fundraising. I've done hiring the first person. Every day for me at this point is the first time, right? First time I've had a company at this month mark or first time I hired this number employee. So I would say it's the inexperience, but also remaining confident because no one cares. No one's going to feel sorry for you. But also you have to be honest with your team. You know what I mean? I think you have to be honest with your team because if you try and act like you know it all, that's going to come off insincere. So I would say the number one thing is, you know, maintaining your confidence and part, like you said, through those ups and downs, right? Because no one's going to wear it harder than you on the bad days. And when those bad days come, you can't quit. I mean, you can, but then you're screwing over all your people who have believed in you. So it's when those bad days come and you want to just curl up into a ball, knowing like that, that option doesn't exist. So those are the days you double up. down and bust through the wall. You got to suck it up and go back in there, mm -hmm. you know, cause like it'll only get worse if you walk away. No one's going to clean it up for you. What books have you read recently that uh, you've enjoyed? Oh man, I'm a really avid reader. So I've been reading a lot and it's funny to your point when you're going through the struggles, like I feel like I try and read books from, you know, Harvard and Yale professors that are on specific topics. Like I just read this great book called The Happiness Advantage about how like happiness is a skill and what leads to productivity was really useful. But I do gravitate towards like biographies from people starting their own companies because it can make you feel less vulnerable. <laughs> <laughs> you know, everyone loves Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz, which is like, like, was, like one of the first books I read. Classic. Yeah. But I recently finished Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. It's really, really good. We really recommend it. I see here, Luke, that you have Creativity, Inc. I read that not that long ago. That's pretty good. I really liked it. Right now, I'm reading the Howard Schultz book, Onward. It's pretty good. It's a different perspective because Phil Knight's Shoe Dog is really about just like him from day one. Howard Schultz's Onward is him coming back as CEO the second time. So it's a different perspective, but it's still cool. So I go between, oh, I want to better, I want to understand habits. So I read Neuriol's Habit and I read you know, Charles Duhigg's book on habits and like books like that. But then I always end up secretly gravitating towards just like 
oh man, I don't want to be like Phil Knight. <laughs> oh man, I thought what I was doing with was hard. Phil Knight had to like do this where like the customs office came and, you know, tried to sue him because Converse lobby paid them and like he had to get out of $70 million to the government. Like, that's way worse than what I'm doing. So. Yeah, those anecdotes really, I think, help put a lot of things in perspective. What's like your favorite anecdote you've heard? Well, I'm reading the Elon Musk book right now. I forget the name of it, but it's one Ash, I think Ashley Green wrote from mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. Elon Musk has like been either, I think he actually died before and maybe came back to life or he was close to that. He, he went on a... Or at least he thinks he died before. He no, no. He went life. on a uh, safari in Africa mm-hmm. and he got bit by some sort of mosquito. Like mm-hmm. I think he had malaria for mm-hmm. a long time and he didn't know he had malaria. His doctor misdiagnosed him for something else and gave him the wrong medication. Yeah. And during that time, he either was super close to death or had died and somehow come back mm-hmm. to life. And this was pre-Tesla, pre-SpaceX, mm-hmm. pre-all those things. I think mm-hmm. he was just starting to get SpaceX off the ground, definitely pre-Tesla. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like reading about kind of how hard he pushes himself mm-hmm. because he's already been so close to experiencing death mm-hmm. is, to me, something that's really interesting because I've not been... I, the closest I've actually I've been to death... I went skydiving one time and my parachute didn't deploy correctly, but I didn't know it at the time. But you were attached to an instructor? I was, I was attached to an instructor okay, and I good. told him to like do some cool stuff while we were diving. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought that was part of the cool stuff. I didn't realize until after we had landed on the ground that the parachute didn't deploy correctly. And when a white parachute goes up, that's when it's like the safety chute. <laughs> if that one fails, then you're dead. So This is why I don't do skydiving because this exact story. <laughs> Next time someone asks me why I don't want to skydiving, <laughs> I'm going to give them your number. Like, call Luke. Yeah, yeah. No, I would <laughs> ask him. I went actually the year after that because it was like, oh, well, I need crazy. a normal experience. I want to feel how it goes. But Here's why I don't do skydiving ultimately. Every day we put our faith in other people. You don't know that the waiter at Sycamore Kitchen is not poisoning your coffee. I mean, like you assume he's not, but like, you don't know. I don't want to put my life in the hands of someone who's no disrespect to this profession, of someone who's a professional parachute packer. I don't want to put my life in his hands because if he was like pissed off that day or like he didn't sleep the night before, like he can make a mistake and we're all human. But if like the Starbucks barista makes the mistake of giving me like, you know, whole milk when I want it on the milk, ah, it's not. Parachute packer doesn't pack my shit. I'm done. I'm over. <laughs> so I don't trust him. I just don't think the juice is worth the squeeze. No, I don't see what the whole it's, it's a lot of all about. I don't like doing sports where the downside is death. Like I play basketball, downside, worst downside. Maybe I, you know, I broke my nose playing basketball once. Not so bad. I don't scuba dive because the downside of scuba diving is like is death. I don't, and people think I'm like annoying for this. I don't ski because of that. Because like more listen, people get hurt skiing than like so many other sports. I know. And I'm not interested in doing a leisurely activity where if like I like kind of like lose my focus for a second, I could become like I could, I could become seriously injured. I'm with it. You just play badminton and bowling? I read books, I go to baseball <laughs> games, like you know, like I do lame couple activities with my girlfriend. Like that that's totally fine. There for we me. Go. It totally fits that's my threshold. If you're going to do something crazy that you're going to die from, you might as well do like squirrel suiting, mm-hmm. right? Like something a little bit more. You have to graduate. Crazy. You have to jump off a plane many, many times before they let you What's do the that? Squirrel <laughs> suit. Isn't it that thing where it's like, like, like puffer fish, it's like one in a hundred or eight chances that you die or. Oh right. yeah. Like you eat, it's like a sushi. Thing, yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. You're crazy to me. No, just Russian roulette. That's sushi. My like spicy tuna is totally amazing and delicious. Like I don't Dragon need, roll, yeah. like I'm good. I don't need that. Yeah. So we've gotten off track here a little bit. <laughs> Steering us back on, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? So can I give something that wasn't given to me, but a piece of sure. advice that was given to the world that I took? 
God, I'm so lame for this, but Kobe Bryant, when he was giving an interview like two years ago, when he was being actually a little petty and vindictive against Smush Parker, but he said, I have nothing in common with lazy people who blame others for their lack of success. That stuck with me so much. And I don't think life can be boiled down to as simple as like, if you fail, you're lazy. Like, you know, Travis K. Linick was in his parents' basement at like 27. And now he's like the Ayn Rand, like love child that everyone dreams himself to be. Right. So it worked out for him. <laughs> so I don't think failure is like, you know, I don't think failure is the worst thing, but that Kobe quote, I have nothing in common with lazy people who blame others for their lack of success. I think that embodies what you need to be as an entrepreneur, which is like, no one's coming to save you and no one feels bad for you. And if you think it's hard, like you signed up for it. And if you think like this is unfair, like you can read anecdotes from so many amazing figures like a Phil Knight or a, or a Musk or a Steve Jobs who had to deal with like some real bullshit. So I feel like that advice just kind of like I always try and boil down of just whenever I'm upset or feel like I want to quit, I read that. And it's like, hey, if I fail, if Crip fails, if Crip succeeds in my venture, eventually, you know, one day else fails. I can live with a failure because of strategy. I can live with, you know what? We put our focus here and we should put it here. But I will never live with a failure of I didn't try really fucking hard. And I think if you bust your ass, not only can you look yourself in the mirror and feel good at the end of the day, but if you bust your ass enough over 5, 10, 15 years, like something will work. So I'd say that piece of advice because it keeps me, keeps me grounded and keeps me remembering like don't complain. There were a couple of other questions, but I feel like that's a good one to end on. <laughs> Where can people find more about you and Crypt and everything? You can find me on Twitter with really just incredible quips about sports and politics at not Jack Davis. Like, how about a, that's like, that was an amazing quip. It's like, my profiles are not Jack Davis. And I'm verified on Twitter. Hey. Which I have no business being verified. Through the application or through a... <laughs> through or, a connection. Yeah. Through a connection, man. It's not what you know, Luke. That's true. It's who you know. But they did open up the... They uh, did. Uh, application. And then I got it right yeah. before because I would have okay. been denied an application so hard. They would have <laughs> been like, we're actually deleting your account because you thought you should apply. Like, you thought you should apply. But I have no business being verified on Twitter by tweet. And then also, obviously, Crypt TV, you should really follow. So at Crypt TV, C R Y P T T V, Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, Twitter, anything that slash Crypt TV is us, CryptTV.com. So you can find us there everywhere. Well, thanks so much for your time. What a great time. This has been a fantastic conversation. Yeah. Talked about a lot of things. Hopefully, we'll see more of it. Next time we'll do a skydiving podcast. There you go. Well, you won't have me as a guest. (laughs) (laughs) No, this is awesome. Thanks for coming on, Jack. Thank you, guys. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time. Mm